from the dark recesses of my unconscious mind into the glaring light of objective reality. You are listening to the Dark Mind Podcast. Friends and familiars, thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Dark Mind Podcast, where we explore the boundless realm of dark literature and film. On today's show, we have a writer of femdom and transgressive horror who has forged a path into Southern Gothic. Her story tackles the struggles of life and death and the sick personalities that seek to enslave us. She's joining me today to talk about the follow-up to her first foray into Southern Gothic entitled Forbidden Gardens. So without further ado, join me as we delve into the dark insight of Claire Castleberry. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me again. Thank you for joining me on this 26th day of October 2023. I was thrilled to receive a copy of your sequel to Azalea House entitled Forbidden Gardens. It was really interesting to be taken back to the world of Marianne and to follow her challenging journey to independence, as well as the betrayal she faced from people that were close to her and her wild journey into fetish club subculture. So I'm really looking forward to getting into the latex clad devil in the details. (laughs) Me too. Well, so as I mentioned, the book is the continuation of the story of a young woman named Marianne. In the first book, Azalea House, she was about 16, grappling with the challenges of adolescence within a dysfunctional family, which worsens after the death of her parents as the result of a car accident. Her brother Marcus runs away to Key West, Florida, due to the intense persecution he faced as a young gay man in a rural conservative area, compounded by the strife within their dysfunctional family. So, fast forward to Forbidden Gardens, we meet Marianne at age 18, who, after meeting her brother in Key West, comes back to Louisiana for her best friend's funeral, who had recently died in a car accident. So, what was the connection or what is the connection between starting both books with the loss of loved ones in car accidents? I think because car accidents scare the ever living crap out of me. (laughs) Apparently I witnessed a very bad car accident in front of this neighborhood laundromat that we used to go to. I don't remember a thing. 
apparently it was very, very gruesome. I must have filed it away in the back of my memory. I don't recall it at all. And then fast forward a few years later, I was in a really bad car accident. We were both okay. I was driving a friend home from school and I was turning a curve and lost control of the vehicle and it went into a ditch. And before it went into the ditch, I fishtailed into another vehicle. It was scary and traumatizing. The car was totaled, but I had nightmares about it for years. Mm. And then after I finished high school, one of my childhood friends actually died in a car accident. She was hit head on by a drunk driver and her and her mother were both killed. So I think it's something I have always thought about and filed away in the back of my mind. And it just kind of came out in both of these books. So it's kind of like what I hear a lot of authors say is that they write about what scares them, mm -hmm. whether it be straight horror or in your case, Southern Gothic. Yeah. Did you ever do anything like EMDR to process the accident? No, I did, you know, go to therapy and mentioned it a couple of times, but it's so funny. I don't really know why it came up, you know, when I wrote Azalea House and Forbidden Gardens, but it just did. And writing about it was very cathartic mm -hmm. and kind of healing. So for me, that's the best kind of therapy is writing it down. Yeah. Writing as catharsis, definitely. Mm -hmm. Well, so the house with all the bad memories that Marianne grew up in referred to as Azalea House was willed to her, but burned down, leaving only the land. She was hoping to gain some financial help from the insurance money from the house, but did not want to sell the land for reasons that are made clear in the first book. So... She went from two states of vulnerability, vulnerable from not having the rights of an adult in the first book, and now in the second book, not having financial independence as an adult. In your opinion, which vulnerability posed a greater challenge for her and why? You know, I like this question a lot. And I think that she had to grow up fast. So age is somewhat of an issue. I think that dealing with the death of both parents, plus having to look out for a younger sibling and fighting off a dysfunctional family, that's a heavy load, even if you're of age, no matter what age you are. Mm -hmm. And of the two, I would say finance, but I'd also just add all of those responsibilities as well. And the whole point of bringing up inheritance, I think, in this book is that you can't rely on it. I think you have to count on yourself and plan ahead. Mm. And anything can happen to inheritance and anything can happen with insurance payouts. You know, someone could decide that you're an arsonist and you don't get it <laughs> and you go to jail. You know, anything can happen with inheritance. Someone could decide to take it away at the last minute and leave it all to their dog or, you know, leave it to an exotic dancer on Bourbon Street. You don't know. <laughs> you have to fend for yourself. And that's one of the morals I wanted to read to take away in Forbidden Gardens is trusting yourself. Always rely on yourself as your best friend, and then you won't lead yourself astray. Yeah, you're kind of short-circuiting the concept of financial independence if you're depending on financial wealth from a like an ethereal source that doesn't come yeah. from you. You know, it's coming, it's almost like it's something that's just being bequeathed to you out of thin air. 
Yeah. 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 I think a lot of people, you know, especially like these old school Southern families, they kind of expect, you know, things to happen and for everything to become rosy, but it doesn't always work out that way. You Mm -hmm. have to rely on yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And God help you if it's a bunch of money, you'll (laughs) like, I forget what I was listening to, but they were talking about generational wealth and they said, I think it was the Medici's, I think that's how you pronounce it, you know, like the 1400s, they had the longest streak of generational wealth, somewhere between seven to 11 generations. Most generational wealth is lost like within three or four. Yeah. Oh, I believe it for sure. Yeah. So she unfortunately stumbles upon a buyer for the property, an old high school jock who happens to be the widower of her recently deceased best friend. And I'm not going to reveal what he intends to do with the property, but Marianne considers his intentions to be obscene. In what ways does the story address the broader theme of financial stability versus moral integrity? So as you said, In the book, Marianne is kind of offered this chance to rebuild Azalea House where it once stood. It would be a completely different house. She gets to design it, you know, big whoop. (laughs) (laughs) So he does offer her love and stability. And I think that's one of the things that she fears is just the uncertainty of the future. But there's always a catch when it comes to these Mm -hmm. things. You know, there's always something else that comes with it. And I think one of the things that I tried to focus on a little bit is that they are rebuilding on this land that holds a lot of dark history. And I started thinking about this a little bit more when some plantations in my area, they started doing these tours and speaking up more about the history of the slaves who were forced to work and live there. And it made people uncomfortable, people who went to see these tours and they complained. And I think if you don't acknowledge the horrors of the past, you're going to keep repeating the same mistakes. So you can't just always polish something up and make it shiny and new and just forget about things that happened in the past. And again, as I said, there's this whole issue again of relying on someone or something else for some kind of stability. You can't rely on that. So in the South, we're often taught not so much anymore that if you, as a woman, you marry someone rich, you know, I had a lot of <laughs> friends who married right out of high school because, you know, college was a waste of time mm. for women. And that's just like poor planning, in my opinion. <laughs> this was set in the 90s. I definitely had a lot of friends who were using this strategy, just marry right out of high school and sacrifice your morals and your dreams and your ambitions for financial security, but anything can happen. Yeah. You know, a hurricane come through and destroy your whole life. It's just poor planning in my personal <laughs> opinion. So thankfully my mom was kind enough to teach me a lot of personal finance and I did go to college, but again, you know, always rely on yourself first. Yeah. And uh circling back to the beginning of what you were talking about, Blake giving her the ability to decorate. I guess she didn't have anything to do with like the architectural design, right? It was just the decoration of it. Yeah. I think she had some input in the architectural design, but yeah, mostly the interior, you know, 
typical woman's stuff, make this house a home. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what I was going to say is he's kind of pulling a political maneuver where he's giving mm -hmm. her control over something that ultimately means nothing, you know, Yeah. to kind of satiate, I guess, that insecurity. I'm kind of relishing the opulence of my own cage. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> well, as she struggles to survive independently, she faces the dangerous allure of two men, one I've already mentioned, Blake, another named Troy, which you'll only be familiar with if you've read the first book, Azalea House. One preyed on her in her youth, and another, her own age, Blake, who tries to entice her into being financially dependent upon him, was actually the widower of, I can't remember her, what was her best friend's name? Chloe. Chloe was actually the widower of Chloe. So were these men drawn to her because of her vulnerability, or was there something else about her that made them feel like they had to possess her? So here's the really crappy thing about being a victim. And I think identifying as one is that you attract more people who victimize you. Mm. And you hear this all the time. I think, you know, with people who have been abused, unless you stand up and say, you know, fuck you and you get your anger out and really deal with it. I think that you just kind of end up repeating the same cycle over and over, unfortunately. And I'm guilty of that too. But I think that that's why a lot of people end up dating their abusers again and again. They'll find certain aspects in these people that when they dial back through time, they say, oh, he was just like the previous you know, relationship. Mm -hmm. So if you grew up in an abusive dynamic, it can actually become a familiar environment. So without meaning to you actually end up seeking out these negative people because they feel comfortable to you. That's all you know. So mm. that's kind of a coping mechanism for living in an abusive environment is that you take on a victim persona. And it can just feel like an easy way to manage your abuse without really dealing with it. And it can also sometimes be a way to garner sympathy from your abuser as well. And, you know, this is something I hated to admit to myself as well, but <laughs> sometimes there's some kind of acknowledgement from your own victimization that at some point it does feel really good that someone is kind or you go to group therapy and there are other people that you can end up relating to when you need them. And you want to hold on to that feeling some kind of way. So you end up repeating the same cycle. And I think that that's what happened to Marianne. Wow. So you think even within the context of going to like a support group, that can foster it even further? Sometimes it can. Yeah. If you don't watch yourself, you can end up in that spiral. Interesting. That happened to me because I you know, didn't take on full responsibility and deal with what I had been through. So yeah, I think it can in some cases. Interesting. So I kind of believe in like individual therapy and group therapy. Yeah. And so comfort is what's underlying all that. The devil, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. It's just kind of weird. Yeah. You know, when you find out the source of things, you're like, that's it. That's what's <laughs> fine. Like, oh, damn it. Really? <laughs> really? <laughs> well, there were 
a couple of points in the book where Marianne had these violent outbursts, kind of like a woman possessed. And I didn't see them coming. (laughs) So I was wondering, can you explain a little bit about what was at play when she had these uncharacteristic episodes? Because I mean, I've obviously finished the book, so I know what it says at the end as far as like... I'm I'm trying to tread carefully to not reveal spoilers, but there is some context about it towards the end. But I mean, it's way over the top. Like, can can you speak a little (laughs) bit about how it's that extreme? So I think that this happens to people when they have repressed anger, to be honest with you. So there's this whole theme of possession throughout the book, and it's kind of used as this literary device for not really coming to terms with your own shadow side. And I know we've talked about Jung before, Mm. and I think that the more you push this shadow side away, the more it kind of comes out in violent and unexpected ways. So all of this is really about her unresolved trauma. Mm. It's not so much possession. Possession is just used as an allegory. Yeah, that makes sense because one of the contentions of, I think it was Thomas Leroy, he was on the show and is a big proponent of the Jungian theory of behavior in the psyche, was talking about serial killers. It's like, oh. Is there a more dramatic manifestation of repressing your shadow? <laughs> you know, like, no kidding. what would happen if the BTK killer would have decided to just write horror instead, you know? Right. Or maybe get into kink or something like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know, though. If you set him up in like an imaginary situation, he might just go full on, like might not be able to stop himself. Yeah. He just needs a good dungeon master or something to keep him in line. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That is possible. Well, unlike Blake, Troy wanted Marianne to explore her darker side, as we just mentioned. Was this for benevolent reasons? And if not, how did it benefit Troy? Was this a power move, manipulation tactic? Yeah, a little bit of it was. I think despite how nasty Troy is as a person, he's always kind of fascinated me as a character. Mm -hmm. He also suffered from a form of abuse as a child, which I get into a little bit in Azalea House. But he dealt with that by drinking. And then later he did quit drinking, but he ends up kind of pulling Marianne down this dark path with him. So for him, I think the reasons are good, you know, from his own perspective, but I think that they're very selfish. You know, he may think that he's doing the right thing. And it ended up being a good result for Marianne, but Troy has that kind of like a doomy personality that we talk about in the world of kink, which is like a sub who manipulates a dominant person to get what they want. Mm. But I think that Troy's kind of character who knew deep down that she would deal with her trauma by becoming a more sexually dominant person. And I do think also that abused people can kind of suss out other abused people pretty easily. And it's a gift that we all share. So In writing Troy, I made him the way that he is, and I made him manipulative on purpose. But he had enough self-awareness to realize what he was doing. I don't really know. Sometimes I think that people just don't really have the self-awareness to know that they're manipulating people. They just do it unintentionally, subconsciously. Mm -hmm. I think there's definitely people that do know 
But I think when it comes to people like gurus, I think a lot of them maybe don't know. I'm sure there's plenty that do know exactly what they're yeah. doing. Yeah. But I often wonder, like, I'm not saying Chogyam Trungpa did that, but he, <laughs> he definitely could be a candidate, you know. But yeah. he talked about spiritual materialism, like mm -hmm. stroking your ego by being spiritual, by asceticism. So, you know, like, yeah. like I'm... Um, being materialistic by being unmaterialistic. So yes. I often wondered if, you know, even though he's kind of stripping the wool off your eyes, as far as that concept goes, was he possibly engaging in it unaware himself? Because I mean, <laughs> there was a lot of his students and, you know, I don't know how much of the uh, more scandalous stuff was true. You know, there's no telling, but I think there are some pretty confirmed cases that he admitted to where he was just having sex with a lot of his students. Maybe he sort of had this guru doomy personality. Or is that what you called it? Doomy? Like, a, yeah, a doomy personality. You yeah. know, me, me, yeah. me. It's all about me, you know, and my <laughs> pleasure and my world and nothing to do with you. Yeah, there's an interesting, I guess it's like a documentary series on Netflix about cult personalities <laughs> and how they operate. It's truly fascinating. Yeah. Well, the one guiding light in the story is a woman named Vic who works in an adult novelty store. And Marianne runs into her when she's looking at some latex wear and Vic kind of takes her under her wing and introduces her to the underground world of fetish clubs. So, how does Vic's mentorship help Marianne confront or reconcile with other aspects of her life outside the world of fetish clubs? I really like Vic as a character. I wish I had a Vic in my life. <laughs> Vic kind of, <laughs> Vic kind of well, helps. Her. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe I'll manifest her or something. Hell yeah, <laughs> that'd be great. <laughs> Vic kind of helps Marianne come out of her shell a little bit by taking an interest in her and by pushing her boundaries a little bit. But it's in a healthy way, I think, in a sensible way, in a way that she needs. I like to think about Vic as like the light side of Troy, kind of. An away. Vic serves as a way for Marianne to see the world without fear. Vic kind of, you know, dances through the shadows and she makes friends with her demons and shakes their hand, you know, pulls them in for a bear hug. And she submerges herself into that world by wearing a lot of black, by being a dominatrix, by working in the adult novelty store, she creates art, she does what she wants, she listens to goth bands, you know, she sleeps with chicks. <laughs> She's not <laughs> afraid to be who she is. And Marianne starts this story by trying to suppress her true feelings and Vic helps bring them out. Yeah. Yeah, I guess she would be a perfect example of somebody that had not identified or repressed, but it integrated with her shadow. Yeah, perfect. Yeah. I, I've said it a million times, what I think writers of dark content matter are doing is integrating with their shadow. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. We're cool people, man. <laughs> Fucking A, I think you are. <laughs> well, Vic takes Marianne on a journey through the fetish club scene in New Orleans, which is synonymous with the decadence of Mardi Gras. So I imagine their actual, and I'm going to date myself here, Red Light District, do you even call it that anymore? <laughs> I imagine it's one of the most unique in the country. Can you tell us a little bit about it? 
So it's definitely changed quite a bit. So in its current state, we have a lot of wonderfully sleazy places along Bourbon. Rick's Cabaret is kind of a standout. I don't go down Bourbon, I guess, as like a local. We just like don't go down that way. But, you know, I guess if you're coming down here and you want to do the Bourbon Street experience, Rick's Cabaret is kind of a standout. Mm. At this point... These places are a little bit sprinkled throughout the city. There's Colette that's over in the warehouse district. And I actually used Colette's layout for some of the scenes in Forbidden Gardens. They're still Mm. there. That's mostly like a swingers joint. I'm not really into that, but they do, you know, kink nights sometimes. There's the Phoenix Bar over on Elysian Fields, which that's kind of like a um, leather bar, a gay leather bar, which is also next to the Always Lounge, where I did a, a reading with the Esoterotica Erotica Writers Group. Burlesque is everywhere here. Mm. So those are just kind of a few examples, but Storyville, the history of the red light district is very interesting. And I'd say anyone who's fascinated by this topic, there's tons of reading material on it. It's not far from where I am right now in the French Quarter. It's just kind of on the other side. Mostly it's been converted into homes now. But in the late 1800s, early 1900s, it was actually established by this politician to regulate prostitution. Mm. Sydney Story, I think, was his name, and that's how it became known as Storyville. So you'll hear that as kind of like another name for it. And he kind of had some guidelines set out to just control prostitution in the city. So it was kind of tolerated and regulated back then. So it's very historic. Another thing that was interesting about it, it was located by a train station. So it kind of saw a lot of comings and goings, so to speak, of (laughs) different people coming to the city. And it's very, very different right now. But it's interesting. And I would say that, you know, if you come to New Orleans, definitely walk through. There's a lot of history over in that direction. And it's also well known for being the home of a lot of jazz musicians. I Mm. think um, Louis Armstrong as a child, lived out in that direction as well. So lots of history around there. Yeah. So when it comes to Vic and any romantic entanglement between her and Marianne, she doesn't maintain monogamy with her. Marianne was attempting to achieve financial independence. So was the relationship dynamic with Vic intended to lead Marianne to emotional independence as well? And can you expound on that? Yeah, I think that she had some other extenuating circumstances that led her to emotional independence as well. I think, you know, having to jump into the world of adulthood and take care of a younger brother pushed her towards that independence. I think that losing her best friend helped push her that way as well. So there were a lot of extenuating circumstances, but I think Vic also kind of served as an allegory and a mirror to her more positive shadow side and helped bring those things to the surface. Mm -hmm. So Vic kind of serves as a representation of how she wants to live her life. So that's how she ended up showing up as a character. And I appreciate Vic. (laughs) I think she did a good job. Yeah. Yeah. She's one of those characters that there's never 
Well, I was about to say there's never a misstep, but I guess you could say she had one misstep when she lost her in that club. Yeah. <laughs> she, she had to come back, keep up, put her down, you know. Yeah. Well, you know, we can't always be perfect. So. Right. <laughs> it's easy to lose people in those places. I was like, oh, God, what's about to happen here? This is not going to be good. Well, how would you define, obviously, as far as psychologically, you said that Vic was kind of the person she wanted to be, a projection of her maybe fully individuated self. But as far as just human to human, how would you define Vic and Marianne's relationship? Vic kind of serves as a mentor and she helps Marianne kind of break through her boundaries. So they start off, you know, kind of platonically and Vic kind of takes her under her wing and brings her to all these clubs and kind of introduces her to this world of dominance and kink. And they become friends and they kind of rely on each other a little bit down the line. And then eventually they become lovers. And then Vic kind of takes her under her wing again and trains her to be a dominatrix. So it's kind of like a full circle kind of relationship. She makes her into the person that Marianne wanted to be in the first place. So again, I think Vic did a good job. Mm-hmm. Go Vic. <laughs> well, so the character of Lily, Marianne's grandmother, is kind of a vindictive old bitch. I don't know why, like, I don't think the way you described her matches up to what she objectively looks like, uh, Cruella DeVille, but for some reason that's what popped <laughs> That's what popped into my mind. I don't know why. Evil old woman, Cruella DeVille. You didn't describe her in any way matching up with her, but <laughs> that's what popped into my mind. And she tries to exploit Marianne's financial insecurity herself. So what inspired the creation of Lily as a malevolent figure in Marianne's life, especially given their familial connection? My own grandmother. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, so was it like flowers she, in the attic? <laughs> no, it wasn't to that level. But she had a lot of unresolved <laughs> mental gremlins going on in her life, and you know, very very difficult upbringing. You know, she was put into foster care in the twenties during the depression and had to deal with that, and then she ended up going back with her family, and she had untreated bipolar disorder. Ooh. And she had my mother and my uncle from three kids from that marriage. And then she remarried and had two more kids. So the family dynamic was interesting. <laughs> the kids who ended up doing what she wanted to, it was a fine relationship. But my mother, <laughs> she was a bohemian artist type. Oh, she ran off to art school and then she met my father. Uh, she was teaching and then she met my father and they ran off to the woods and became bohemian hippies together. And I guess my grandmother didn't really care for that too much. <laughs> so uh, we were a little bit ostracized as far as like our little close family unit. And I kind of witnessed a lot of interesting fights and family dynamics and I guess it's a little bit petty, but I kind of took revenge on her <laughs> in these books. But yeah, there you go. A little bit of personal family history for you. That's why I write about yeah. the things I write about, because I've experienced <laughs> a little bit of it. 
Yeah, it's not the first time I've heard that. Be careful how you talk to me. I'll make you a character in my book. <laughs> yes. So you said your mom was a bohemian artist. I'm assuming your grandmother was the polar opposite, very conservative, very old-fashioned? She had some, you know, liberal values, but I think that she wanted control in all aspects of everyone's lives. I mean, I'm talking down to hairstyle, clothes, you know. My mother, you know, she always struggled with her weight, so that became a huge issue in their dynamic. And I think she just got really upset when she wasn't able to control situations. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, again, lots of interesting fights. And some of the conversations that I remember during childhood, they were actually put into Azalea House and Forbidden Gardens. Well, so she met your father when she was teaching? Yes, actually, that's an interesting story. My mom was teaching with my dad's sister. And they became good friends. And that's how my parents actually met was through my aunt. Oh, okay. Yep. All right. Marianne's brother, Marcus, was a particularly conflicted character. How do you think the persecution he faced from both his family and society for being gay shaped his personality and his outlook on life? Marcus is a fun character for me. I mean, he's definitely not perfect. It was interesting when I wrote Azalea House, a lot of people actually wrote to me and said that they related to his character. He has a chip on his shoulder, you know, anyone would growing up in South Louisiana in the 90s where, you know, being gay, it just was not accepted. And that's one of the reasons I said it in the 90s, because it's interesting to kind of go back in time 20, 25 years ago and think about how life was back then and how things like this were just not repressed. I mean, parents were sending kids away to Bible camp and conversion therapy camp. All I mean, I have plenty of friends this happened to. So he's definitely got a chip on his shoulder. He's definitely full of smartassery and interesting little quips and comebacks. And I think he takes out a little bit of his anger on Marianne, which is understandable. Right. Because, you know, she can just sleep with anyone and get her way. So why doesn't she do it? You know, (laughs) we could have financial stability if you would just do this one thing for me and make life easier. So, yeah, he's a messy character, but I understand how he came out the way that he did. I think anyone would be like that. Yeah. Well, the novel is both a sequel and a standalone So were there elements you couldn't really delve into because they necessitated a deep familiarity with Azalea House? And if so, how did you address that? This was so (laughs) difficult for me. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, one of the reasons I took it on is because I knew that it would be a challenge, but it was kind of a welcome challenge. I think in Forbidden Gardens, I didn't really go into too much detail about the twins and the whole backstory. And that was kind of like a central story theme in Azalea House. But I wanted Marianne to deal with her past and move forward into the future. Mm-hmm. That's been kind of a major theme in my own personal life. So I wanted to give a little bit of backstory, give a little bit of context without going into too much exposition. And I think I pulled it off. 
<laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, was, I think so very, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a lot of fun to do. It was a huge challenge, but I think I'll do it again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I was just curious to know, like, as you're writing it, you not only have you quote unquote read the first book, but I mean, you're so immersed in it. It's just kind of a part of the process as you're writing the new one. So how do you keep track of like, Oh, wait a minute. This is something that somebody that hadn't read the first book would know. Like I have a really good editor. (laughs) Oh, okay. (laughs) Is her name Vic? (laughs) (laughs) It's Michael Dolan at winding road stories. So the interesting thing about this book is I kind of like wrote it and then I forgot about it. I put it aside and then like I didn't remember writing it. I never seem to like remember the time period or what was going on around when I'm writing something a little bit longer. It's just like maybe I become possessed and I channel it out and write it down and then Mm. the demon leaves or something once I get it out (laughs) all on paper. But I wrote it and then I think in a phone conversation, he asked me, what are you working on? I said, Oh, I, th- I don't know. Maybe I have like a sequel. He was like, send it to me. It's <laughs> like, I'm not going to do that. It's total crap. So I put it out with a couple of beta readers who enjoyed it. And then I think I had another conversation with him and he said, look, if you have a sequel to this, let's try to get it out for StokerCon." Mm-hmm. And it was like January of this year. And I was like, there's no way that this is going to happen. So I polished it up as much as I could and did as much editing as I could and kind of relied on this confirmation from these beta readers and then sent it to him. And yeah, he provided some great insight and we whipped it into shape and got a cover and got it edited and proofread and got it out for StokerCon. I was impressed. (laughs) Nice. Yeah, that's quite a a feat. Yeah. You know, you were... um talking about the book taking place in the 90s i think it was yesterday i saw you uh i don't know are, are we tweeting anymore are we xing what are we doing <laughs> oh <laughs> Some, man I something don't know. on that i really don't know <laughs> you did something on that website that involved a post and uh you had said it was nine inch nails the downward spiral yes and you said something like how does this still hit or something like that Yeah, it's still a perfect album for me. I don't know why I don't get tired of it. Well, I wasn't sure, but I'm pretty sure that you and I are the same age, right? I'm 43. Yeah, I'm 43. 43, yeah. I almost posted it, but I wasn't positive we were the same age I was going to post because we were both 14. (laughs) That's a great point. That's when you're so angsty and and full of emotion. Uh I guess we still are. (laughs) If it still, if it still hits, I guess we still are. Yeah. God. Yep. Well, how did you approach the balance of creating a sense of familiarity for returning readers while also making the sequel stand on its own? Yeah, it was really, really difficult. You know, I've done a sequel before, but it was for a novella. And it was fairly easy to do. I just kind of picked up where the story ended and left off. I wanted to create something with the same characters that could be read as a standalone. And it involved like having to pick up Azalea House again and skimming it. And, you know, I had a beat sheet that I used as well. And I kind of, you know, went back through it. 
but really what I did was just kind of picked up where Azalea House left off. And there's a scene in Forbidden Gardens where Marianne is writing a biography of her parents' band, Spellbound Hearts. And she's looking through photo albums and letters and things like that. And that's where the memories start to hit. And that's where I added in the backstory of Azalea House. I didn't want to focus too much on it. But a lot of that also kind of came from rereading a lot of DC Andrews novels, because I think (laughs) that she was kind of a master of the whole family drama saga. She pulled it off pretty well, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I was looking up kind of a description of Southern Gothic fiction. And it said, there's often an exploration of decay, societal taboos, and familial dynamics. So check, check, check. (laughs) But is there anything that you feel that you added to the mix that makes your story particularly unique within the genre? I think that, you know, everyone has their own unique perspective. And I didn't really realize this until I became an adult that it was weird to grow up behind a family bar (laughs) and to live in the swamp and, you know, kind of have that perspective of growing up in the Bible belt while, you know, your mom runs a bar and you're kind of ostracized for that. So I think my characters kind of feel that Southern Gothic sense of loneliness and, and isolation. And I was able to relate to that and they feel ostracized by their family's choices. Like my family, they were not into music. My dad was actually in a band in the 60s called The Ancient Ruins, and they were featured on like the Buffalo Bill show. (laughs) (laughs) But he kind of aspired to become a police officer. So that's what he ended up doing. But they weren't famous musicians or anything like that. But we were kind of seen as different because of the bar. And I think I was able to kind of add that perspective then with my stories. Mm. Yeah, you mentioned V.C. Andrews. I had Rebecca Jones Howell on the show, and she's a big fan of V.C. Andrews. But she also said she hate reads the ghost written works. I had no idea. Like I, I I'm not familiar with V.C. Andrews. I've never read uh, any of her stuff. I think I've seen the movie adaptation of Flowers in the Attic. But uh, I had no idea that there was this whole slew of literature that's posthumously getting pumped out by a ghostwriter. Yeah. So do you read? Do you read any of the? Is it Niederman? Something like that? Any of those? Andrew Niederman. Yeah. Yes, he does get a lot of hate. <laughs> I think actually that he's just really doing his job. I understand the hate reading though. Yeah, that's a very, very complex issue. Yeah, I don't think she's saying she hates Niederman. She just hates the fact that she's reading something that's not written yeah. by the original author just so she can kind of reap the nostalgia. You know? Yeah, I totally understand that. To me, personally... I can tell when something is written by V.C. Andrews and when something is written by the ghostwriter Andrew Niederman. Andrew Niederman, I think, grew up in Brooklyn and, you know, he's just kind of like, you know, doing what his contract tells him to do. But V.C. Andrews lived the life. She, you know, grew up in the South. She had a disability that isolated her. So that in and of itself, that is a Southern Gothic life. She was writing with authenticity, I think. And you can really, really tell in Flowers in the Attic and My Sweet Audrina, 
a lot of that emotion comes through in those works. And that's what makes them different to me. I can tell. But I still think that there's like some validity in, in some of the stuff that Niederman has done. And I think he does do a, you know, a decent job of carrying on the legacy. Now, why it's being done and why it's being carried on, that's a whole other issue in and of itself. That's her family mm-hmm. kind of capitalizing on what she started. And there's another Southern Gothic element for you right there, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. That's pretty meta. Like, yeah. That's a family saga perpetuating a family saga. Definitely. But I mean, like, why? I don't know. Like, evidently it's profitable or they wouldn't keep doing it, right? Exactly. Yeah, it's just, it's kind of sad. I wonder how uh, DC feels about all this stuff, if she's spinning in her grave about it or (laughs) or how she feels. If it's profitable, I wonder why, you know, God forbid that a bunch of people start doing this, but I wonder why more people don't do it. What do you think in particular about V.C. Andrews? Just I don't know. I mean, she really captivated people with the fact that money doesn't solve everything. It certainly Mm. makes things easier, but it also makes it easier to manipulate and control and dominate people. And I think she really, really tapped into that because, you know, she had her own family history of things that she went through. And she was just able to tap into the emotion of all of that. And I think that people recognize that Mm. and they appreciated that, you know, just because you live in a huge fancy mansion and, you know, you have nice, pretty flowery dresses doesn't mean (laughs) that your life is perfect. A lot of crazy things happen behind those closed gilded doors. Yeah. Well, with the, unique blend of horror, romance, and deep-rooted traditions present in Southern Gothic literature, which aspect was the most enjoyable or challenging for you to write in Forbidden Gardens? So I think a lot of it is just, you know, family dynamics. That's still something that I deal with today, but there's an underlying current of possession themes that run through Forbidden Gardens and It was enjoyable and challenging, but it also creeped me out. I picked up a a lot of books and true, apparently, testimonies of people who had been possessed. And I think that's something that also really scares me as much as as car accidents, as just losing control. Mm. And those scenes where she's walking around New Orleans and she ends up in a bad neighborhood and she's not able to control what happens with her hands. Those kinds of things freak me out. (laughs) (laughs) So that's why they're present in the book. I had to kind of push through to write a few of those scenes, but I'm glad that I did. It kind of helped exercise a few of my own demons. Exercise the demons. Mm -hmm. Well, Did you find it hard to keep the atmosphere of a Southern Gothic tale when you got into the more metropolitan sprawl of New Orleans? You know what? I actually wasn't sure how I wanted to handle this at first. And I kind of recalled something that one of my friends said, Norman Partridge, who wrote Dark Harvest. Mm. We kind of bonded over horror and you know, I had come from New Orleans and he was talking about his perspective of New Orleans as an outsider. He said, it's the strangest place ever. 
I've never been anywhere like New Orleans where you can just be riding along some street and there are these huge mansions and then you take a wrong turn and go one block and you're in a completely different area. Mm. It can be, you know, totally run down, abandoned buildings, you know, very derelict, but you can turn around and see these mansions on St. Charles Avenue in a lot of places. And that really stuck out in my mind. And I think that coming at it from that perspective, having you know lived there and then moved away and then coming back, I was able to really, really see that. So I think a lot of Southern Gothic focuses on dichotomies a lot of the times. So that's a major theme that you'll see is wealthy and poor and, you know, run down and extravagant and, you know, putting on that whole bless your heart attitude, uh, you know, <laughs> when really they mean something else. And there's that whole underlying theme of passive aggressiveness. But one thing that really, really helped me bring it out once I had that idea in my mind that I wanted to draw that relationship between you know, Marianne's true kind of shy self and this possessed kind of evil dominant side that she has, as well as comparing it to New Orleans rich and poor, it was the movie Possession mm -hmm. from 1981. I loved that that was set in Germany. I don't know if you've ever seen it before, but mm -hmm. it does an outstanding job of showing the difference between West and East Berlin. Mm -hmm. And it, it draws on a lot of those same themes. It was very, very fascinating. So that was a huge inspiration for Forbidden Gardens. Hmm. Interesting. Well, as you were writing Forbidden Gardens, was there anything about Marianne's character as the writing of her character progressed that surprised you? And if so, what would that be? Hmm. This is a great question because... <laughs> <laughs> when I did the first draft, she became pregnant and then she kept the baby. And at the end of the book, Lily steals the baby. <laughs> well, I thought she was about to say Lily eats the baby. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe in another uh, edition or something like that. Maybe I'll write an alternate edition or something like that. L Lily steals the baby. So I kind of grappled with this and then I ended up rewriting it so that, you know, she ended up having a miscarriage and that kind of surprised me that I, you know, didn't actually go with that ending. I liked that original ending where, you know, it kind of left things on a cliffhanger and, you know, you don't know what Lily's going to do with the child, but I ended up having her have the miscarriage because if she hadn't, I don't think that she would have been able to immerse herself into Vic's world and she wouldn't have been able to explore her shadow side. I think that she would have just been trapped in this house with Blake in a terrible situation. So for me, it was kind of a way to help her break away from the past a little bit and to break through those family ties and become a more independent, self-assured person. Okay. Well, you mentioned it earlier, Marianne had aspirations of being a biographer as a writing career and is initially in the process of writing a book about the band that her parents were in. And that got me curious about you. Have you yourself done anything outside of fiction? So 
when I was in my 20s, I randomly got this job with this magazine called Sinning in LA. This was when I lived in Los Angeles. And they would <laughs> send me out to these bizarre places. I went to the Dr. Susan Block show for a few recordings, actually. I don't know if any of your listeners have heard of her, but she does a radio show and she also has people call in with sex questions and things like that. So I went to a few of those and they would send me to different places like these weird kink events. And one of them was about like how to give a blowjob on a cucumber, like wild, <laughs> wild things. So they would send me to these places. And then I did these Gonzo Hunter S. Thompson style journalism pieces on them. Nice. So those were so great. I could just be like a fly on the wall. Like I love to do just observing and, you know, kind of like being like the creepy writer person in the shadows who's just kind of like mm. jotting down notes and taking down information. Did you go full on Hunter S. Thompson? Like LSD and cocaine just all no, the way? No, 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 no. no? Oh, yeah. I pretty much like <laughs> behaved myself when I was in Los Angeles. I couldn't afford drugs because like the pay wasn't all that great. So damn it. <laughs> yeah, I know. It was, it was too bad. No. I did drink a little bit, but you know, not full on Hunter S. Thompson. We all want Claire to stay off drugs. <laughs> <laughs> that'd be bad. We want Claire to stay drug free. <laughs> yeah, that'd be bad. <laughs> well, besides these two works of Southern Gothic fiction, you have written works of femdom erotica. It seems like you've combined the two in Forbidden Gardens. So I was curious to know, how did your previous individual works in both genres inform your approach to the sequel? So I kind of started out my writing career, so to speak, by doing erotica. But I had always read horror. And there were a few things that came out in the 90s, like Poppy Z. Bright's Love in Vain, that mm. combined the two. And I became mildly obsessed with those. And, you know, I always kind of thought, well, I wouldn't be able to do that. And, you know, smut pays the bills and, you know, erotica pays the bills. So I'll just kind of stick with that. But when I ended up meeting Norman Partridge in, I think it was 2011 or 2012. No, earlier than that. 2006, actually. <laughs> Man, the time just flies. Mm -hmm. uh, he kind of pushed me a little bit and said, look, you know, if you've been writing all this stuff, you may as well try your hand at horror since I had read so much of it. So I kind of thank him for pushing me towards combining the two of them. But certainly, I think my lifestyle <laughs> choices over the years have kind of um, served me well in that department. I put in a few personal experiences in Forbidden Gardens. I was never really like a full-time professional dominatrix or anything like that. I just kind of dabbled in that. But yeah, putting in personal experiences always feels more authentic. I don't think I was ever possessed, but sometimes I feel that way when I'm writing. <laughs> <laughs> that creative, I guess flow wouldn't be the right word, that creative rush. Yeah. Yeah, it's like a high. Who needs drugs when you get into that flow state? Exactly. <laughs> well, are you making the story of Marianne a trilogy? And if so, could you tell us what aspect of Marianne's journey the next book will focus on? 
I started it and I decided to delete it because I don't want to get sued. So, um, all right. Yeah. 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 It was a little little bit too personal. So I think I'm going to restart it. I'm working on a couple of other little projects right now, but it's likely that it will be a trilogy and it will likely focus on Marianne's deep dive into the dark side where she goes a little bit too deep and ends up becoming kind of a little bit like a Troy character, indulging Mm. too much in pleasure and learns a lesson from the universe. She takes on a mentee and uh, becomes kind of a manipulative monster. So Mm. I'll be exploring those issues a little bit in book three. It's called Wildflowers. <laughs> a true hog of Epicurus is heard. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, uh, this is kind of a a reversion back to a previous question, but you mentioned Poppy Z. Bright. I have not heard that name in quite a while. I have only read the one they did about being a sous chef. Yeah. yeah I've read that one were, too. Yeah. What was it called? I can't remember. Uh, liquor. I probably have a copy of it somewhere up yeah. here. I had it on digital and I don't know how to access it. I think it might have been on like the Nook. What was that? Barnes and Noble Nook. And I don't think I have my password anymore. <laughs> well, how long did it take you to write Forbidden Gardens? And what did your writing schedule look like? Because I imagine it was probably fevered at one point if you were trying to make Stoker Con. <laughs> Yeah, so last year, late last year, I kind of sat down and pounded it out. What I always do is check out books from the library. I'll get as much information as I can. This is really my favorite part of the the writing process. I'll read as much as possible. A lot of it will be kind of anecdotal things. I read a lot of possession stories. I read a lot about people's personal experiences with autoerotic asphyxiation, which shows up in the book quite prominently. And to be completely honest with you, I don't remember a lot of the time that I spent writing Forbidden Gardens. I would just go into the zone and, you know, three or four hours would pass and I would have, you know, a whole five chapters or something like that. Wow. So it was pretty strange. I was also working on ghostwriting projects at the time, too. So those were in the background, but it kind of ruined my eyes. (laughs) I have to wear reading glasses now after I've finished Forbidden Gardens because I kind of feel like I wrote it in a frenzy. But yeah, once I had the draft and my editor kind of pushed me on it, we were good to go. Nice. It did feel kind of frenzied, but it was fun, man. (laughs) It was a blast. Yeah, you were possessed. (laughs) Yeah, I think I was. I think I was. (laughs) Definitely. Well, when I interviewed you for Azalea House, you mentioned that your partner, who is an anesthesiologist, helped you with technical advice. I think uh, in particular when it came to like someone having to drug somebody, because obviously they know all about the sedatives and general anesthetics and stuff like that. So did you utilize his experience for the writing of this book? No, not really. He is going to be consulted for a draft that I've done about an anesthesiologist who indulges in a sleep fetish. 
and mm. it takes her into kind of this horrible underground world of necrophilia. Oh. So I'm definitely going to be utilizing his advice on that. But he gives me some advice on on certain things. Like I wrote this two-part novella series called Toxic Femininity. And the main character in that book utilizes a little bit of anesthesia skills. So yeah, he's a great resource, man. Doctors are <laughs> they're great to have around, <laughs> especially horror, man. Oh, yeah, oh, definitely. Geez. Anything biological, anything drug-related. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Well, tell us about the, I think it's, what is this, the 26th, about two days away, the upcoming Louisiana Book Festival? So I have never done this particular festival before, but it's going to be from 9 to 4 in downtown Baton Rouge in front of the Louisiana State Library. And I will be at booth 48 along Exhibitors Row. So it should be interesting because I'll be right in front of a library that I used to work at. <laughs> mm. <laughs> so yeah, I might see some old co-workers. Who knows? Should be a lot of fun though. I'm really looking forward to it. I'll have candy there. So if people don't want to buy a book, they can come by and get free candy. Ah, I see what you did there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's how you lure people in is with uh, candy. Yeah. Yeah, well, that would be interesting to see people that you uh, used to work with full circle as an author. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it should be weird. Yeah, surprise, surprise! I write <laughs> smutty stuff. <laughs> <laughs> would it be a surprise? Were you like the quiet one that nobody realized? Oh yeah, I mean, it's always us, you know. Yeah, we're always yeah. getting into that kind of trouble, you know. Well, speaking of us. Well, I guess the other member of the team is not so quiet. I know you are BFFs with NJ Gallegos. So <laughs> do, you, do you have any plans on collaborating with her in any way? You know what? That'd be a lot of fun, but I think we would get banned into oblivion. <laughs> well, you just have to make a website where you distribute it from there. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't even know if like our publisher would pick up something like that. <laughs> The past couple of times we've gotten together, I think he's wanted us to like tone it down a little bit, <laughs> you know, <laughs> calm down. Yeah, we were having dinner in Brooklyn right before the Brooklyn Book Festival with some YA authors, and I think we kind of scared him a little bit. So, <laughs> yeah, we're on the naughty list. Oh no. <laughs> Say it ain't so. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what he expected though, yeah. but Listeners at home, spoiler alert, there will be an upcoming episode with uh, NJ Gallegos. And when we were uh, recording, it was hard for me to ask the questions because as I was looking at her, she was taking sips of tea out of this coffee mug that was bigger than her head. And it's just, it, I don't know, it just struck me as hilarious. And so I was like, yeah, send me uh, an author pick when you get a chance. Oh, and you know what? You should make the picture of you in that mug. And sure enough, she did. It's freaking hilarious. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> so have you made any new discoveries or employed any new strategies in marketing? Oh, man, I wish. You know what? <laughs> I kind of just like, since I got into TikTok, I've just had a really good time making these dumb little cap cut videos that amuse me. I think they might just amuse me and everyone <laughs> else is like, what are, you, what are you doing? But those are a lot of fun. And that's really my marketing strategy is just to be myself, <laughs> just <laughs> kind of have fun with it. 
but I think I'm going to take a class. Marketing is not really my strong suit. So yeah. I'm going to try to learn as much as I possibly can. Yeah. You know, it is what it is. It's part of being an author. You just have to know how to do it. Yeah, it's a purely uh, selfish question on my part because I know nothing about marketing <laughs> either. So I'm trying to like, do what now? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I think a lot of podcasters are going to TikTok and putting in little clips and things like that. And that seems to be working pretty well for him. So there you go. Tiki Taki, the clock act. Oh, God. I know. TikTok, huh? That's that's what I got to do? Is that what you're telling me? <laughs> uh, no. no, not necessarily. I think you can just kind of pick two <laughs> social media avenues and go with those. I feel like we're kind of all over the place at this point. There's like Twitter X and Blue Sky and Threads and Instagram and Facebook and TikTok is mm. too much. Yeah, I mean, I love Instagram. X is a very scaled down. I don't know. I mean, I'm not very present on X because other than just kind of saying stuff, there's not too many creative options. Right. Most of what I put on X is like links to stuff on Instagram. Yeah, yeah. I used to really, really enjoy it. And I think that the writing community was very strong and very, you know, connected and everyone was trying to support each other. But then it came like a crazy fighting playground like WWE or something. So it's Mm kind of changed. But I agree with you about the creativity of Instagram. I really like utilizing stories and just, you know, sandwiching in hilarious things that I find on there with, you know, just a post about a book or something that I have coming up. So that's kind of fun. It feels authentic to me. So I'll keep doing that, I guess. Yeah. Well, tell me about your experience at StokerCon that you were highly relieved that you were able to get the book done by. (laughs) Yeah, it was kind of a wild, mad frenzy. I had planned to go and just kind of promote Forbidden Gardens, but I ended up getting invited to do a virtual panel, a live reading, and then an in-person panel. So I was like, well, okay, well, here we go. We're going to be busy. It's Yeah. (laughs) So it was a great experience. It's just, it's, you know, it's nice, I think, to be around people who enjoy the same thing. You know, I think, you know, when we were growing up, it was just hard to find other people who liked horror. It seemed like they were few and far between. And this is a a conference where you can go and just geek out. Mm -hmm. So it's great. For me, it was fun and it was chaotic. The in-person reading, I chose an excerpt from Forbidden Gardens that was like a possession kink scene. And I followed some YA authors. So I think people in the audience were a little bit you know, taken aback by that no. <laughs> because it was so different from what other people were reading. I don't know. Sorry, not sorry. <laughs> anyway, don't forgive me for it. <laughs> the in-person panel was on George Romero. So that was just a blast. I feel like we could have talked about George Romero and Night of the Living Dead for six hours, but we only had an hour or so. It was a lot of fun. Uh, That was moderated by George Harrison, who has directed some episodes of Tales from the Crypt and plenty of other things. So he had a lot of great insight. He was um, George Romero's mentee. So it was a fabulous discussion. I really enjoyed it. But by the time I got home, I was ready to just blob out and baby talk with my cats and (laughs) and do nothing. 
Yeah, I've thought about going to Texas Author Con, going to Stoker Con, and I am not a social butterfly. So I'm like, would I really? I mean, it would be great to be surrounded by tables where I could go around and, you know, buy books and stuff like that. But, you know, as you said, it's great to be around people that are interested in the same things you are, which like, there's nobody within a, <laughs> or I guess I should say there's just nobody in my general sphere, especially at my day job that, you know, I can yeah. have any kind of, so I'm like, I wonder if I was unleashed in that scenario, just surrounded by people interested in the same thing I am, that I wouldn't just turn into a raging extrovert, just like you wouldn't be able to shut me up, you know? Well, the good thing about these author events is that we're all book people. And a lot of us are introverts. So I think I kind of played it well. I didn't do full days at the con. I intentionally scheduled some downtime. So I think that's kind of the key to it. And I also intentionally booked a place not in the hotel. Ah. (laughs) I booked it at an Airbnb that was Mm. kind of, I had to take a bus to actually get to the con so I think that was a good idea. It was a little nerve wracking because I had just watched the film Barbarian right before I left. I don't know if you've seen that, but that's uh, like a really bad idea if you're going to do an Airbnb. If you haven't seen it, I'm not going to give it away for you, but uh, well, I mean, watch it. <laughs> I imagine the premise is like, what's that movie where the, is it The Strangers? It had Liv Tyler in it. Oh, I think I know what you're talking Yeah. The guy had just proposed to Liv Tyler. She said no. I think it's The Strangers. Barbarian is like in its own weird league of its own. I'm tempted to tell you more about it, but then I would ruin it for you. If you think I'll (laughs) like it, don't tell me. (laughs) You'll either like it or really hate it. If you watch it, let me know what you think. All right. Well, how is the beekeeping going? Oh my gosh. This is like the most dramatic hobby I've ever had in my (laughs) life. So we actually did a split, which is advisable to do if your hive is getting too big and they're running out of space. You can take a few frames of baby bees and adult bees and comb and honey and place it in a hive of its own. And if you have like a queen cell to go along with it, they will actually raise a new queen. So we did that because we were facing issues of overcrowding. Then we had three hives. So I went out a few days ago and actually witnessed the worker bees carrying out a dead queen, pushing her out of the hive. <laughs> out with so the old and with had, the new. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know what was wrong with her, but I mean, they know, you know, sometimes if she's not doing well or if she's diseased, they'll kill her or sometimes she'll just die for no apparent mm. reason or I wish I had one of those mini cameras to put inside the hives and see what they're doing all day. I would totally watch that. I feel like the best streaming service ever. (laughs) (laughs) So now we're down to two hives. But anyway, it was very, very dramatic. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so is what I've seen that kind of looks like a chest of drawers, is that a hive? And then the frames are the little slides that go into it? Yep, you are correct. Okay. All right. And you said that a queen bee cell, like, what is that exactly? I mean, I know what a queen bee is, but a cell? Yeah, it's really weird. It's interesting to read about if you want to geek out about these things. But if they're feeling overcrowded or if 
they kind of feel like their resources should be moved. It can be really for any reason. They will create a cell on the frames that looks like a peanut mm. and they'll feed that cell royal jelly. And that basically helps them raise a new queen bee. So she's just kind of fed and treated a little bit different. It's wild. Wow, <laughs> that's you. backwards. You raise something to rule over you? Yeah, isn't that wild? <laughs> that's crazy. Fascinating, uh, fascinating stuff. Yeah, yeah, they'll do that. They know what to do. Hmm. Well, Claire, as always, it was a pleasure talking with you. You as well. Thank you so much for having me on. Always great questions. Oh, thank you very much. Always great answers. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. All right. Well, listeners at home, all links are in the description. And Claire, thank you again for joining me. Thank you, Vince. This was fun. And thank you to everyone that tuned in. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to like, share, and subscribe. Be sure to tune in next Tuesday when I will have three writers that will give you the grand tour of a haunted house. So until then, stay healthy, stay sane, and as always, thank you for listening. See you next time. The mountains hide my hindsight And all I see is you The future out before me Is coming into view The heartache that brought me here The hurt that held the fear And tied me to a stone Now I'm rescued from my chains I'm free to walk away And now I'm coming home We know, we know We don't have to speak